uh, several of you have asked, said, uh, could you tell us a few more stories about your father before it's all over? I'll, I can't remember which ones I told when I was here five years ago, but uh, maybe a, if, if it's repeat, I apologize. Uh, I was telling a few guys earlier, uh, my dad was a surgeon, uh, and uh, the Buick dealers decided that he needed a new car and put a salesman on that. So the salesman called up and said, Doc, we got a, a, a 59 Buick, and you'd just love it. It's just made for you. It's a white convertible, and come over and see it. My dad said, I don't need another car. I've got 30000 on my car now. It's doing just fine, but I'll consider it in the future maybe. The guy wouldn't quit. So finally, he talked him into taking it for the weekend. Brand new white Buick convertible, red and white tuck and roll upholstery. We had our uh, beach place out on Puget Sound on Henderson Bay near Gig Harbor. So he drives up in this new 59 Buick convertible, tosses me the keys and says, have a good weekend. <laughs> One time I got a call from him over in the fraternity house. <coughs> over at the University of Washington. He phoned over and said, did you, did you mention one time that you'd like a sports car? I said, Dad, I would love a sports car. He said, well, I've got this patient. I just saved his life in surgery, and he bought one, and he hates it. He just wants to dump it. So uh, I think you need that. It was an MGA convertible. Black, onyx finish. Bingo. I took it up to Hurricane Ridge and took every corner at 65 and learned how to do a four-wheel drift. Uh, just out of the blue. Just absolutely out of the blue. One time he came home, we were... Every year he took us down to Palm Springs. Palm Springs was a nothing. It was where movie stars went to hide out and nobody could find them. It was just a nothing little town. And he would yank us out of school every year, about February, up in Seattle... He wouldn't ask permission. He would announce to the teacher that we were going to be gone. And that if they wanted us to do some extra work, that would be fine and he would oversee it. But we were going to go. We were going over to Siskiyou's one time. And a guy came up. We stopped for coffee. And a guy came up and said, Doc, he was a patient. He drove for LASME. That's the Los Angeles-Seattle Motor Express, a large trucking company that drove the West Coast. It was winter. The Siskiyous, of course, were the Siskiyous. Lots of snow. It was before the freeway system, so we were on the old 99. He said, Doc, why don't you ride along with me to the next stop? Have your wife follow us and uh, uh, come on along in the cab. And Dad said, can I bring Rod? He said, sure, bring him along. So we're going up this hill about three or four miles an hour, and some idiot behind him starts to honk at him. And he reaches up and pulls this cord above the windshield. And the honking stops. And my dad said, what did you just do? He said, I just sprayed crankcase oil all over his windshield. <laughs> One of the few times I really saw him flare... Uh, was that he had, with his brother and his brother's family, they had set up uh, a, 
uh, vacation at Yellowstone Lodge. So we all arrived there, and they went in to check in, and there was this young gal behind the desk, and she couldn't find the reservation. My dad said, well, just go looking. I'm sure you'll find it. We made it six months ago. Meanwhile, his brother was saying, we can set up the tent right in here, Bill. You know, I've got a tent. We'll set it up right in the lobby. And the girl was just sort of horrified as he went out to the car and started to get pieces. Uh, and my dad said, no, I'm sh- just take a look. I'm sure you'll find it. And she still didn't. And she came back and mumbled something or other. That it just. And he looked at her and he said, Miss, I want you to go find that reservation. And if you don't, Tomorrow, I'm going to buy this lodge, and I'm going to fire you. (laughs) I think I told the story before of uh, him coming home one night. We were in high school. Came home, normal night. Came home, walked into the house, and said, Everybody go pack your bags. We're going to Honolulu in two hours. I mean, that was, that was like magic when you were from Seattle and just had seen Hawaii on television. Go pack your bags. We're off to Honolulu in two hours. Uh, I, I think I did tell the story at the advent before about that I evidently, as a small boy, had seen a water pump and asked what it was. And he thought that was awful. He was from Iowa originally. And no boy should ask what is a water pump? So he bought a farm underneath Mount Rainier. Bought the whole valley. Old farmhouse up on the top. A crank phone, party line, uh, really old. And in the back bedroom of that farmhouse, one of the bedrooms, in the closet from ceiling to floor was all ammunition of various calibers. I would bring boys up there to the farm for the weekend and their mothers thought they were going to die and the boys thought they'd gone to heaven. Uh, every caliber you could think of. 45 ACP, 30-06. Um, there was no 9mm then. Uh, various shotgun, shotgun uh, uh, shells, 12, 20, uh, 410. And uh, uh, clay pigeons, boxes of them on the floor, a hand trap, and we just shot all weekend. He put these boys to a safety course, then turned them over to me, and we just shot all weekend. Anything that we wanted to shoot. We were up there where it was, there was enough land around that you didn't have to worry about it. We would go in and get boxes of 22 bullets like this and put them in our pockets and go shoot them all up and then come get more. And the next three weeks when we'd come up again, it was all restocked. Everything was replaced, ready to do it all over again, and it never ran out. That was stunning. I didn't realize at the time. I thought that was just sort of how all boys had it, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, Oh, there's some other ones. I was at uh, one of the council meetings for the alliance and I was sitting there at one of these little bar tables that just only three people could sit at. I was sitting there with R.C. and Vesta and Ben Sass, this young Harvard hotshot who'd been brought out of crusade to the Reformation. Uh, 
came over to the table. He said, Rod, could I uh, take you for a little bit? I said, sure. I picked up my drink and I was walking across the the floor of the bar. I said, what do you got in mind, Ned? He said, I just want you to tell stories about your dad to these guys over here. Uh, the boys are in desperate need even of stories. Your fathers, you know. But anytime they can hear some stories, it isn't against you, it's for you to hear good stories. It would be good for you too uh, of this kind of of fathering. Now, we had, one of you and I had a conversation about, well, you know, how do you discipline? Uh, and I, probably the same way you do. But it isn't the whole story. Um, the discipline will come and go and pass. The other things won't. They're analogies. It was easier to be, for me to become a theist because of him. Because of him. And stories like that. I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah, you know that one though. Is everybody here today? Huh? When I was in high school, I joined one of these high school fraternities. We thought we were pretty hot stuff. I joined, I pledged one of those high school fraternities, and one of the nights, the pledges would go hide and leave clues around, and the name of the game was for us to find the clues and find them. I had been bequeathed by Dad's used old Buick. It was a straight eight with a, what we called a Dynaflow transmission. Long hood, because a straight eight demanded a long hood. We had several beers under our belts, all of us, and we were more than a little buzzed. And I was driving, and I came out of a blind corner very, very carefully, but the long hood was almost into the first lane before I saw that Ford coming to my left, and he hit me and hit me hard. And the Buick just sort of collapsed. And I got to a phone and phoned my dad, and I said, uh, I just was involved in a wreck. And there were about six of us in the car. He said, is everybody okay? I said, yeah, we are. We're all okay. Just the car's wrecked. He said, where are you? And I said, we're not actually far from home. We're just, he said, sit there. I'll have it towed. I'll be there in a few minutes. And I said, oh, and we're drunk. All of us. So he came and picked us up and took five drunk high school kids home and then brought me home. And we came into the house and he told my mother to leave us alone. I won't digress on that, but that was a wise move. I told her to leave us alone. And we went in and sat down on the couch, put his arm around me. He said, what are you feeling? I said, I'm shaken. He said, that's shock. That's all right. He said, what else? And I just started to cry. Uh, and he said, I think what you need is a new car. Why don't you go look at this coming week, see what you can find, and I'll take a lunch hour and we'll find something for you. He could have grounded me till 2045. <laughs> you know? uh, amazing. We used to uh, pretend that we were going to study for chemistry tests. Everybody would come over to my house to study for chemistry tests. That would last about a half an hour. And somebody would say, let's play some poker. So the chemistry ended and we go downstairs to our finished basement, set up a table and start playing poker. He would come down 
with six glasses of, of Coke and crushed ice and a whole thing of buttered salted popcorn, then he'd sit down and lose a hundred dollars. I know his hands weren't that bad. I think probably he knew his life was short. He had rheumatic fever as a child, and it damaged his heart. Uh, he died at 52 in open-heart surgery at Mayo Clinic. His father was one of the eight surgeons that formed Mayo. And uh, I think he probably knew that his life was short, so it was going to be full. And I got to be the recipient of that. It's going to be full. It's going to be full. This is going to be a good ride. So, anything that is of help to you, I'm glad to throw it into the pot. Uh, yeah? Did you give a word for those of us that are fathers to girls? Fall in love with them. Girls are easy. You say, no, they're not. Yeah, they are. For fathers. Dickens with mothers. And all the stuff about I've got the shotgun for her first date, and I'm going to be cleaning it as the guy comes in, all that, it's in all of us. It's in all of us. That's, that's a universal. It's a universal. But aside from that, a friend of mine who started the Ford Graduate School of Psychology, he was a wingman for Chuck Yeager, flew, flew P-51s with the bombers over Germany. He was the first man in the United States to have both an MDiv and a PhD in clinical psych. He was professor of pastoral psych at Fuller Seminary, but he started the School of Psych. And uh, he said to this men's group I was in, he said, just be in love with your daughters. It'll be fine. Another one I learned from him, he said, what you need to tell Aaron is not so much I love you, that's fine. But he said, with well, a daughter, a father needs to say, I know how much you love me. He gets, she, she, he said she gets her freedom from that. And he said later on her orgasms, but she gets her freedom from I know how much you love me. Whoa. So uh, if that's of help to you, that's, that's all from somebody else who is, you know, with a whole bunch of us guys. He knew, he realized that we were, we were in our culture losing complete track of what Lewis calls philia. Non-homosexualized love between those of the same sex. French call it camaraderie. Guys from World War II went into depression when they got home. It was the closest they'd ever been with other men and it was over. Uh, People will say to R.C. and to me, how many times, women will say, how many times have you watched Tombstone? R.C. says, I think I've watched it 19 times. And I said, oh, I'm sure I've watched it 13 times. And women say, why are you watching the same movie over and over and over again? Well, because of Doc and Wyatt. Because of Doc and Wyatt. That's why. And it's almost gone. Uh, extremely important that men meet together, fathers meet together in some kind of a way where the coinage of meeting together is where it's not working, not where it is. Men connect not at the level primarily of cognitive agreement, that's a piece of it, 
But the place where we really connect is where you say, here it isn't working. Can you help me? Or got any ideas? Or have you gone through this? Or what did you do? Or It's where it's not working that we connect. Not at the level of my salary's bigger than yours in a big dick contest. <laughs> that, isn't where men, that isn't where men connect. But we connect at the level of where it isn't working and the women aren't around. How's it going for you? That's where we connect. And the sons will pick this up. What men do together is talk about things that are troubling them and try to give a little help to each other. Almost gone, but we need it. Read Lewis's The Four Loves, the chapter on philia. Uh, I've had a group that met at my house. It was only men for ten years. Met at my house on Saturday night, and uh, it was lots of alcohol and lots of beef and uh, barbecue and uh, a whole lot of talk about ballistics and my handgun versus yours and calibers and uh, one guy did thousand yard precision bench shooting at Pendleton. Um, that was, you know, and it mixed in with that was orthodox theology and inviting unbelievers into the midst of it. Several people were converted to Christ by that, not immediately directly, but over the long haul when they saw that Christianity wasn't a set of womanly rules. Um, but it was philia. They're still in grief over that ending. When I sold my house and that ended, they're still in grief over that because there was no parallel for it. You guys in seminary, almost non-existent. Don't dream that you'll find much of it. If you find one or two guys, you're really blessed. Uh, but the necessity of this, uh, there, there is help that we can give to each other and no woman can give it. She can give help in ways that no man can, but there are things that we've lost track of. And activities are great, but I'm talking about where there's time just to talk over drinks and the connection is what isn't working or where the itch is and, and where it needs to be scratched. So, uh, and I'm with you. I'm with you. Call me anytime. And I'm not going to give you a recipe. I'm probably going to say, how's it going? Remember that line from Tombstone? Doc, this ain't your fight. Wyatt, I think that's about the cruelest thing you ever said to me. I wasn't quite as sick as I put on, Wyatt. Great movie. Great movie. Anyway, for what it's worth. For what it's worth. All right. Yes, sir. Did you feel that your father was trying to intentionally display grace, mercy, and the gospel to you? Or was it un unintentional, uh, maybe through the Holy Spirit, or just his good, good parenting? Actually, Paul, this pilot, said to me, there's a very important man in your father's life whose name you don't know. And I said, why do you say that? He said, because what you've described of your paternal grandfather, the surgeon, and your paternal grandmother, the schoolmarm, 
couldn't have produced your father. He said, there's somebody in his probably younger life, some professor, somebody who filled in a lot of things that were missing from your paternal grandparents. I don't know about the intentionality of it. To, to the outward, it just looked like, well, because this is going to be good for all of us, it'll be good for you, it'll be good for me, and it'll be fun, and so it, that's how it appeared. But I was so young and so stupid, I, I mean, I didn't have the brains to really even think about that. I, I was in the middle of it, but it wasn't as if I was analyzing. You know, uh, I mentioned to somebody that uh, Dr. Horton was published at 14 by a major publisher, Thomas Nelson. 14! I didn't have a thought at 20. <laughs> I had not had a thought yet. I was oblivious, just oblivious. Uh, bought a beach place out at their Gig Harbor area, uh, put a pool in so that the kids could come and have a safe place to spend all day in the pool, had boats so that we could all learn to water ski, uh, and all the kids learned to water ski out there at the Rosenblatt's Beach Place. That They were city kids, you know. People didn't own boats the way they do in California. That was not common. So they came out there. And sometimes would, uh, you know, play until 2 in the morning and then collapse into sleeping bags. And that that was uh, a good thing. It, was it intentional? My guess is yes. Yes, my life is short, and boy, it's going to make these kids' lives as rich as I can do it before I check out. That's a guess, because I didn't have the brains to even think about it. Stupid little kid. But it just kept washing my way, and it was he who was doing it. Uh... I worked in junior high. He gave me a filing clerk job in his office so I could learn what it was to get a paycheck and earn it and so forth. And one time I saw him in the hallway of his office with this beautiful blonde southern nurse. I was in love. She had a southern accent and her name was Frida. <sighs> <laughs> Anyway, I happened to catch part of that conversation. Uh, he said, Frida, somebody told me you were sick. And she said, well, I'm not feeling too good. And he said, well, why don't you go home? And she said, we can't afford to lose the money. He said, Frida, I run this office. And it will be okay. Don't worry about money. Just go and get well. Man, that's powerful stuff to see. Man, that's powerful. Whew. And he didn't know I was listening. The lab tech decided to teach me how to do some CBCs and urinalyses because it would be a good thing for a young kid to know. Japanese guy. So he was walking me through it. I was looking through the microscope one time and he said... 
do you know, Rod, that I would work for your father anytime, anywhere? I said, really? He said, you don't know why, do you? I said, no. He said, because your father pays me twice what any other lab tech in this city earns on the one condition that I don't blab. But I don't talk about that. He pays me twice what any other tech in the city gets. I didn't know that. Died March 9th, 1962. It's still like yesterday. It never goes away. Or another line from Paul. When good fathers die, it's always too early. Sorry. All right. Back to it. This is a tough chapter, and I'm going to really go lightly with it. And if you want the details, you can get the printout from Gil. Uh, uh, Morris admits at the outside, at the outset of this chapter on propitiation, <laughs> makes some admissions right at the start. Here, these are quotes. I hope this chapter will not prove too heavy for the ordinary reader. Problem. Nobody seems to have made propitiation simple. To most of us, the term is just plain incomprehensible. And the result of that is a pronounced disinclination to make the effort needed to see whether anything much is at stake here. But there is, in fact, quite a lot at stake. The concept of propitiation is important to biblical religion. So if we're serious about our Christianity, we must at least make an effort to understand it. First off, neither the verb nor the noun is of frequent occurrence in the New Testament. And in many modern translations, the words are not found at all, but instead replacements. Expiation. Now, says Morris, it doesn't matter to most of us because we don't understand expiation either. And our reaction is, so why, why does it make any difference? Why does it matter? Neither word is of common occurrence in everyday speech. It's easy to come to the conclusion that no great issue is involved here. But there's a difference between those two. Propitiation is the turning away of anger. It is a personal word, persons. One propitiates a person. God is angry when people sin, and if they are to be forgiven, something must be done about that anger. The death of Christ means a removing of his divine wrath from sinners. It will not fall on the believer. Advocate with the Father? 
Yes. So I wanted them to know that when you're talking about propitiation, what they hear on Sunday morning is perfect offering to what they're talking about. Yeah. This is a really, really wonderful and rich and good and deep word and concept. The NIV, the NIV, which is neither good nor bad. It's like yesterday's Pepsi that you left out on the table. Um, it isn't a, it isn't bad. It just isn't anything. And they will say the atoning sacrifice or something, and then there's an asterisk. And you go out on the bottom of the page and it says literally propitiation. One of the real translations, the New American Standard, just puts it in there and says propitiation. And the idea is if you don't get it, go look it up. That's what it means. I mean, it's what it says. Go find out. But they don't soften it. Um, and God bless them for that. I don't know what ESV did. I'm just get, sort of getting used to the ESV. But my New American Standard New Testament is sort of like my Colt 45. They'll pry it out of my cold, dead hands because it's so close to the Greek. Expiation is a process. It is impersonal, and it has to do with making amends for a wrong. One expiates a crime or a sin. It's a process by which the effects are nullified, a remedy. And, in the case of the RSV, behind it is a complete rejection of wrath in God at all. The turning away of anger... I'm not going to go through the liberal, he's writing against the liberals who reject all wrath of God and think it's unworthy. And many times you will find people bring up that it's not worthy of the New Testament because the very emotion, or any emotion, is foreign to God himself, which always makes me feel like they've got an inside track beyond the New Testament text that I'm not privy to. Um, and it, we will grant, conservatives will grant, that the gods of the heathen were capricious, arbitrary, couldn't be figured out, got angry, and had to be appeased or bribed. That's true of most heathen religions. And of course, some Christian scholar will say, well, that's sure as heck atheist, and they're correct. But the fact that communists brush their teeth in the morning doesn't mean I shouldn't brush mine. Uh, the fact that Mormons use the word gospel doesn't mean I'm going to give it up. So, the liberals who say, let's just remove the word from the New Testament, um, impossible. Impossible. I don't care that you're offended by the thought that there is wrath in God. The text we're going to stick with, and your ideas will listen to when you rise from the dead after three days. (laughs) 
the wrath of God in the Old Testament is clear and frequent. Uh, there are even more than 20 words for it. It's not an occasional topic. There's a consistency about God's wrath in Scripture that we don't find in, uh, we don't find similar expressions about, used about the gods of the heathen. Theirs were, as I said, capricious. But the Hebrews were not in such doubt. They knew that their sin aroused God's anger, and it had to do with in general and with specific sins, and there was text after text after text. It is so strongly emphasized in the Old Testament that you would think that it would be a given that God is always angry when people sin. But no, the liberals, uh, C.H. Dodd in particular, way back when, came up with ingenious arguments such that they thought they could explain these words without it being what it looked like it meant. In Dodd's case, uh, he denied that we should use wrath with regard to God and substituted that it was a way of describing an impersonal process in which sin was followed by disaster. Um, cause and effect. And many liberals took that idea up. Now, no wonder the wrath of God is not a popular concept. I don't like it either. Uh, but as somebody said to Lewis about hell, Lewis answered, every Christian I know would like there not to be a hell, but what are we to do with the text? And it's a great answer, but what are we to do with the text? Dodd's hypothesis does not fit the facts. In the Bible, the wrath of God is intensely personal, and it's over and over and over. The prophets, uh, Amos especially, their vivid references, their frequent references, sure, there's disaster following sin, but there's more here than that. It's not because of some impersonal process. It's because God will not allow man to sin with impunity. He's a moral God, and the text says he is angry when we sin. Again and again, it is emphasized that God is personally at work in the execution of his anger and in the showing of his mercy. God said that it was personal when it had to do with love, and impersonal when it had to do with, with the wrath. But language doesn't carry that argument. Uh, so, in the Old Testament, the wrath of God does receive emphasis. And it's invariably aroused by human sin. And if people are to be forgiven, God's, God's wrath must be dealt with, and we can't do it. It will not fade away with time, or by being given some other, some other name, or, as, or by being regarded as some impersonal process. Uh, as the Old Testament writers God's wrath, see it, God's wrath is not put away by some human activity. Now, in the heathen tribes, you, the religions, you had this. Their gods would respond to bribes. God, the God of Israel is not described that way. If his wrath is to be removed, its removal is due to none less than God himself. Uh, and the passages are listed there. Time after time, he restrained his anger. For my own name's sake, will I delay my wrath. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You set aside all your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. Those are almost all from the Psalms. 
in the Septuagint, we have the Haleskabai words, and uh, in the Bible of the uh, Bible of the first Christians, the Septuagint uh, it did not mean propitiation. The claim is that it uh, uh, evolved into a new meaning for the old word group, and the New Testament writers took up that new meaning. The only problem is there's no evidence for that, whatever. Uh, he attempts to give Dodd's argument in the best way that he can and then goes up against it. You can do that on your own. Uh, his argument that you can tell the meaning of a word from the company it keeps, you guys in seminary, that you want to take a look at that. It's an old argument, but still in vogue. Uh, context overrides uh, uh, etymology. You want to look at that? Lots at stake here. Yeah. Well, before you get away from talking about what the last God really is, could you maybe expand a little bit about how it's not, it doesn't involve petulance? Yes. How, that, how it's not really the same thing as human anger? Absolutely. Great point, Charles. Now, he devotes a section to that. It's a little bit up ahead. But just in case I would... It's a great point. It's a great point. And, of course, that's been brought up again and again and again. And with all the attributes of God, we, we end up saying implicitly, but, of course, with none of the human weaknesses. And here especially. And that's right. I would love to give that to a liberal if he would behave himself when I gave it to him. But he doesn't. He's not, he wants... He wants to capture all this territory and burn it over like Sherman. <laughs> uh, it's a great point. When we talk about the wrath of God, it is not. Uh, there are two words for it, and one of them has to do with seething. And that's what we do many times. You know, some just, And it's not very holy, or I'll say to somebody... I hate theological liberals, and it's not a holy hatred, it's an unholy hatred. Um, we know from ourselves and friends that that surely is not what we're attributing to the God of Israel, and that's correct. That's correct. I tell my students who are working with youth, I'm going to give you an attribute of God that is going to be a key to your teenagers and your youth group. Immutability. They go, What? God is immutable. I, the Lord, your God, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Uh, and what's the one in James? Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is neither change nor shadow of a turn. Okay, don't say I never quoted James. I just did. His <laughs> um, immutability. That is that he can be dependent upon. His grace toward you today will be there tomorrow in the same way, unlike humans. It is stable. His will toward you is not just what it is today. It will be that next week, and it will be that next year, and the promises will hold to the very end. This is a wire you can walk on. It will hold. And verses like that. Why? What have they? What have the kids seen in their lives? Nothing but change. 
I found my, found my own kids being slow to form friendships there in Irvine. Why? Because everybody on our block was some high-powered exec with Kawasaki or Honda or whatever. And if they formed a friendship, the company would trans could transfer them in a week. And they're gone. What is, how does the child react to that? And you don't form the friendship, so it can't happen. You just hang back because it's only good for today. These children, products of four divorces or whatever, blended, 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 or in their culture where everything is a hula hoop change, you know, and doesn't last very long, they get the message that nothing can be really dependent upon. They get it. And, and no human being should have to live like that. Least of all a child. And here I, I'm saying to these future youth leaders, use this. This goes really deep. It may sound Greek and abstract. And the language even is Greek. But don't, don't be intimidated by that. God, the God of Israel is immutable. Remember anything like that with Jesus talking about his words? Heaven and earth will pass away. Huh? Same sort of thing as Charles is bringing up here. The Hebrews did not mean that. The, the weaker side of our human exploding. Or kids who have to look through the the windows so when dad comes home to see what kind of a mood it looks like he's in. None of that. None of that. None of the arbitrary father. Or he must have had a bad day at the office. Any of that. Um, this is the one who solidly will be tomorrow and next week what he is today. And you can bet the farm on it. You can bet all the blue chips on it because it is going to hold. Okay? Very important point. And the liberals use that to caricature yours and my position as if that's what we're talking about. And it many times makes me wonder behind the scenes, I wonder what his dad was like. I wonder what his dad was like. I think that a lot in theological conferences. I wonder what his dad was like. Uh, anyway, thanks, Charles. Absolutely. Um, in the Old Testament, when, when, when God is forbearing uh, mm -hmm. the, city, like, the full measure of his wrath uh -huh. on disobedience, um, on, on what basis would we do that? Jesus. On, on, on Jesus. <laughs> it's always, always. <laughs> yeah, because there's always, there's always a, a measure of, of like the, uh, like the, the striking down of the um, of the Levites in, uh, <coughs> in Exodus. I think when 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 they when they uh, oh, it was in Exodus when they did the golden calf and they sent the Levites to cut down their neighbor and, and their friend and all that. So there there's there's still some sort of measure of of, of wrath. Yet um, I guess it's just affected in the New Testament. Well, what you have you have all the Levitical system mm -hmm. to take care of it. In other words, the Jew, I, I like to think that I would have been Simeon or would have recognized, I don't think I would have, I would have been clueless. 
But the, the Jew who lived in Leviticus, or should be living in Leviticus, should have said to himself, this strange one up ahead, the Moses said, talked about, there one come, one of your brothers from amongst you, listen to him. Or that Isaiah talked about uh, in Isaiah 53. Um, the sacrificial system, and the Bible says it, God doesn't need the blood of, bo- of goats and bulls, but it's pointing to something which you can't guess but which is going to be that he is going to take care of his own wrath. He is going to deal with it. Right now, do this, because it pictures what he's going to do. And I know what I would have been like. I would have come at that uh, Sabbath, that Passover, and I would have said to my wife, do we have a whatever we need? You know, I'd come home from the office and say something that superficial and say, oh, somebody go run and get... I know I would have been like that. I just, I know my heart. I know I would have been on the side of, well, whatever he wants, let's do it. And then uh, let's watch Star Trek. Or, you know. Uh, I wish that it worked like that, but I know that I would have been like that. I should have been learning more from all the Levitical law. That it was pointing to him himself on my behalf doing something so great but I wouldn't even have to worry about his, his justice and wrath anymore. And amazingly, he would pour it out on himself so that it didn't hit me. Incredible. Incredible. That we don't have to worry about God's wrath in that kind of a way. The Son received it into his own body that afternoon for the whole world. If you're a Calvinist, I apologize. <laughs> The text. Uh, uh, that he has dealt with it definitively. The picture uh, is beyond this, but it's at least this, of the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest goes in and sprinkles or pours the blood on the mercy seat on top of, at least in the old days, uh, the mercy seat. And the blood covered the sin so that God could no longer see Israel's sin, the sacrificial blood covered it, and God's wrath was turned away by the sacrifice, so that it didn't fall on Israel. And you can feel perfectly free to personalize that. God's wrath will not fall on me. I am hid in Christ, and I don't have to worry about that in the middle of the night. He poured it out that afternoon and exhausted it into the body of His own Son. It's finished. It is finished. So don't misunderstand as I'm hammering away from Morris on the wrath of God here. It's as a background to something that's much more important as he himself steps in to meet his own wrath in our behalf because we would be wiped out, condemned forever. And he intercedes and takes it into his own body. That's what propitiation is about. To give that up is to give up way too much ground to anybody, liberals or otherwise. God's wrath he poured out on himself in a substitutionary atonement. And it will never fall on you. Ever. 
Now, if that doesn't cause some kind of, gee, thanks, I don't know what would. You know? That's what propitiation, I've left my notes, but you can do the details in reading the notes. That's what propitiation is about. God took to his body in Christ his own wrath and drank it to the dregs, exhausted it, It'll never fall on you. Don't give that one up. Not without a fight. Not without a fight. Now, I know if, if you read through the details of this, it is kind of dicey. I was glad he said at the very first, this is a little difficult linguistic stuff. But if it's of help to you, I'm glad. Um, it is a little difficult, but it's important. All those passages about the wrath of God, you can say, and he poured it out on Jesus and not on me. Forever. You will not face his justice. He will say to you, screwed up as your sanctified life is, and I know it is, not because I know you, because I know the Bible and I know me, you will get there and he will say, enter into the joy of your master. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I go, it was a total screw-up. <laughs> Start to finish, top to bottom. And he's not cognizant of it. Enter into the joy of your master. The wrath was propitiated one afternoon within the Trinity, and you'll never face it. So, is it wrath? Yeah, it's wrath, full tilt, exactly what it looks like on the page, and he took it. To the person of Christ, and this has to do with part of what's going on at the cross. All right, am I holding us over here? We, are we all right? Okay, so we have till 12. Okay, well, let's... Let me open it up for questions here. I know you'll have to do some of the detail. We can go back to it if you want to for more details. It is, I know, difficult, as I said. But the gist of it is not me doing 45 minutes of the wrath of God and saying, have a nice day. The gist of it is, in Jesus, and in his dying, he accepted all of the wrath due the whole race and said, I'll take it. I'll take it. It isn't God as a person pouring out His wrath on the persons who have disobeyed Him. It's a some kind of blind process. Yeah, it's kind of like a yeah, like a, a, a court ordered. Uh, what are they? The civil service till you're paid your dues. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. It's much more powerful than that. It is a personal God, personally angry at a whole world of sin, and a personal God who says, I'm taking it into my person, full point, full dregs. I'll, I'll eat it for him. Well, give me a clue, 
point me in a direction there. Um, well, for instance, uh, Peter um, was fully forgiven and, um, and enjoyed benefits this year. Right. Yes, he was uh, afflicted in many ways, and God allowed the affliction mm -hmm. uh, to occur. Uh, or, or he actually um, brought forth the affliction, but it wasn't. But it wasn't out of condemnation. Yeah. Um, the the theology of the cross says, and remember, there isn't a lot of that in Luther, but it's important. It was it was not very much in terms of sheer text, but still important. Um, the theology of the cross says that in full peace with God, because of what Christ has done, and his wrath having been turned away from me forever by Christ taking into his own body, I will still be under attack both in general and for bearing the name of Christ. And that's how it will go. So that we ought not be surprised. Kierkegaard does well with this. There are a lot of things he doesn't do well with. He does well with this. That is, if we see that this as some sort of Victory all the, all, over all the vicissitudes of life. We're misreading. Uh, my children can be cut down in a car wreck next week. We're, we're, it's just the way it is. It does not mean they're condemned by God or singled out. Whatever it does mean, it isn't that. The Bible assures me of that. But, Luther said that one of the ways in which we know that we are at peace with God is that we are afflicted. And it's normal living under the cross, sub cruce. That's normal. So this is not sort of a way to help the Baptist, or worse, the Pentecostal, to this deliverance from everything. No. In fact, maybe it might be a little worse. But it isn't the wrath of God. It isn't the wrath of God. That's what it isn't. And uh, that's what we think. When I'm in the hospital, I'll need my pastor to come and tell me, you know, this isn't the wrath of God. Jesus tells Peter that Satan intends to sit your soul, but I'm going to pray for you, so it's not right. God's wrath. Right. Right. Yeah. You want to speak the relationship between the wrath of God and the love of God? Uh, there's a lot in here on it, and what he basically says is that out of real love comes anger at sin. Not arbitrary capriciousness, but real love does that. They're not disjunct. He said the opposite of love is hate, uh, not anger. And non-wrath would be indifference. Indifference. Yep. There's quite a section he does on that, and it's a good section. Uh, but you're right on track, John. Yeah. Yeah, you're seeing, even without me doing it, what's coming. And he does. And he does just what you said. At the risk of going down a real point, Pat, could you speak to uh, predestination? No. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I'll... It's best that I just refer you to that Walter, those pieces. That'll be a good start to it.
Um, they were predestined to be on that website. <laughs> <laughs> um, other questions? But hopefully to what we're talking about here. Propitiation is important enough we should give it 10 minutes of Q&A. Uh, yeah? It's what, it's what John raised the appropriate response to people when you talk about wrath and propitiation to say, look, that's not and can't be a characteristic of God. The God I know, again, I guess it's very, is, is, is a loving, generous God. He has no, he's not mean. And therefore, yeah, he's not mean. There's nothing to propitiate. That's something you have to do with selfish people and no, the Bible is applying it to God and specifically to his wrath on Israel. There's no doubt about it. But the end point is, he took it. You don't have to worry. This is, this is not a half story, it's a complete story. The background is his wrath. The clue is the Levitical system, scapegoat and, and the lamb. That was the pointer to when he would really do it, and he did really do it, and took it all. So that, we all should affirm this wrath because it's what the Bible says, but we're not going to face it. Not the one in Christ. Never. But you can't wash the thing out. That, that's what God's trying to do. And that's what we can't do. To say, uh, well, I don't think that God has any wrath. What are you going to do with the text? Well, the some of the most intense things in all the Bible about judgment and hell come from Jesus' lips. Sometimes more intensely from than in Paul. So I'm I'm not one that's inclined to say that the answers have to do with Old Covenant, New Covenant in that kind of a way. I, I, some of the most intense things about God's wrath come from Jesus himself and in the red letters. No, not the black letters. Uh, we don't expect to find them there, but they are. Jesus was talking about Sheol like David was in the Psalms. He's talking about And he's talking about fire. Yeah, yeah. It was, again, it was an analogy. It was the never-ending burning garbage dump out this, outside the city where the fire just smoldered 24 hours a day forever. And it was a word picture. But uh, the the Father as described by Jesus in the New Testament, is sometimes more intense than we notice on the side of wrath. It's there. And of course it's in Paul. Uh, so I think, I think it's better to come up with a Christocentric answer that the Bible really does give us. God dealt with this himself, within himself, for our benefit one afternoon. Um, his wrath he poured out already so that you would be included in Christ. You're included under that 
having been done drinking of it by Christ himself. I think that's the best way so that we don't have to do this like puzzle parts uh, for your consideration anyway. Yeah. Then when I quote something like he will say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. This is theological. I'm, I'm morally, your life and sanctification is probably better than mine, or they're both a mess. But that, we're talking theology here. We're talking what has happened in our for our benefit uh, in Christ. And part of that is what the old dogmaticians called his passive obedience and his active obedience. Wesley was really nervous about that active obedience. What did it mean? They were saved not just by the death of Christ, but by his life, says Paul. And that is that he reckons to our side of the ledger, to our benefit, Christ's life, having lived according to the law perfectly, 24-7, his whole life long, unlike us. And so that part of justification is we are reckoned Christ's life as if we lived it. Now, why did Wesley get so nervous about that? Because he said, you're cutting off the very limb on which the pressure to achieve holiness sits. Uh, he could go that justification was forgiveness, but he didn't want that business about Christ's righteousness being imputed to you. Well, by George, if you really get down to it, that's the gospel, huh? It's not just that I'm forgiven and I get a second chance. Who was it who just said that? It was uh, Rick Warren. The gospel is a mulligan. <laughs> the gospel is a mulligan. And he's phoning Mike every week. Last time I saw Mike, he said, he's phoning me every week, Rob, telling me we're on the same page. Anyway, imputation. That the righteousness of Christ's life is imputed to you too. As if you lived it. Uh, important stuff. I'm leaving here, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, this CD of every page of every past issue of Present Truth magazine. Those, those guys who discovered the Reformation, the objective gospel, and they went up against American evangelical subjectivism every way they could. Uh, you'll, you'll want to get that. One whole issue is on sanctification. Several of you have asked me privately about sanctification. One whole issue is on that subject, and it's great stuff. So uh, that's free. I gave out 1,100 co <coughs> copies of it for free to an evangelical Chautauqua in Iowa one time. I had the uh, White Horse Inn manager contact, see if they can, they can still find representatives of it in Fallbrook, California, and she did, and said, can we make 1,100 copies and pass them out for free? And they said, absolutely. Glad somebody's still using it. God's blessings go. 
So I, you can give it to your friends, too. There are no strings on this. No copyright worries. Just feel free. It, I, I took it down off the web, but something on the web could dis disappear at any time and be gone forever. So I had them grab it and lay it down on a CD. And one whole issue is sanctification. So... You want to talk about the T-shirt on your website? <laughs> Week on sanctification? Yeah, that's from Wesley. <laughs> as far as we know, all Wesley read of Luther was on a two-hour stagecoach ride to London one time. And when he finished the ride, there were people who sort of interviewed him, I guess. And he is said to have said, of uh, reading Luther, he said, there is no man since St. Paul who better understood the doctrine of justification than Martin Luther. And there is no man so ignorant of the doctrine of sanctification as the same man. And the t-shirt came from that. The t-shirt on my son's site, weak on sanctification. And then on the back is Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies wicked people, to him his faith is reckoned as if it were righteousness. Uh, but that's a conversation starter. <laughs> and it's drawn from Wesley. Wesley's evaluation of Luther. Um, remember, it's just, this is just 66-year-old wisdom or lack of it. You want to allow some time to satisfy your interest in sanctification, the doctrine of, the, so forth. But go back to your Christology again. Go back to the story of the rescue. Go back to uh, justification. Go back to... It's what we really need. And if the logical order of Romans is correct, then 5, 6, 7, 8 goes through, again, having the gospel preached to us and being absolved, comes the only impetus there really is to sanctification. It isn't in studying sanctification. It's in going back to being absolved for our lack of it. It gives us courage, ironically, to go on to fight the fight again and again. The other way doesn't work. If you're just a pragmatist, it doesn't work. You get either you start turning into a Pharisee and believe you're pulling it off, or you go the other route and say, I think I'll blow my brains out. Uh, studying the majesty of the person and work of Christ doesn't do that. So step three is just always going back to step one. Really? The rescue, the great rescue. Dorothy Sayers, Dorothy Sayers said... This is the greatest drama, the greatest plot line ever. And nobody could make this thing boring except the priests of the Church of England who managed it with great effort. Uh, this is the greatest story in the world. This is a plot line to die for. And uh, great, great movies, you know, in many ways have this back behind them, somehow, somewhere. Uh, even, well, I guess I won't say that with the mic on. <laughs> I'll leave that one. <laughs> I can edit it out. <laughs> Pardon? I can edit it out. 
Okay. Even Disney Studios got something right with Lion King. Way beyond, I think, what you can explain. Holy smokes. That was ethereal. There was no resurrection. But, I mean, you can't get a retelling of the Gospels. You just have to do this. The artist has to do this with figures and similes and metaphors and pictures and so forth. But that thing is stunning. The Lion King is stunning. Uh, my little two-year-old nephew is into lions because of Lion King, and I'll watch it again with him. And you know why. Huh? It's, it's that father-son thing again for the rescue of the whole land. For free. For free. Yeah, you can edit that out, Charles. But it is. You quoted God and say a minute ago, you know, she's got this other quote where she says, worse than the fact of uh, we have uh, declawed the lion of Judah yes. and make him a, 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 a pet fit for pale curates and old ladies. Or yes. Yes. I, I would have proposed marriage to her, I think. <laughs> We were one time watching TV, and their TV was on on a Saturday. My son was probably 15, 16. And there was some crazy peace conference in San Francisco. Why we had that on, I don't know, but they made the mistake of inviting Maggie Thatcher. And she got up there and did what Maggie does so well, and my 15-year-old son jumps up out of his chair and says, I want to marry you! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I'll hang around. Uh, some of you would like to grab a couple of minutes on this question or that. I hope it's a bit of uh, some help and aid to you. It's been a pleasure to be back to the Advent, be in uh, your company. I will um, try to make sure that I leave with Gil everything that I promised. You can just take it for free, and I hope that will be of help to you, too. That Present Truth magazine you want to get, as long as the price is zero, grab it. Uh, especially you guys at seminary, grab that thing. Uh, so thanks for the invitation again. I commend you to the good God in Christ. And uh, hope to see you again in some context or other. Uh, to both our good. Thanks.